This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and today it is just me, and I'm here to help you recover from all those 4th of July barbecues. I know no one has any idea what day it is this week, but it is Thursday. And today we are bringing you two very special segments, something old and something new. First, we're bringing you a piece we first ran back in 2019. And you know, we very, very, very rarely rerun things on this show. We like to keep things very, very fresh for you. But this segment seemed especially relevant because of all the conversations we've been having about names and specifically Jewish names. It also felt very appropriate for this extended holiday week. In this segment, our former editor Noah Levinson investigates the real story behind immigrant name changes at Ellis Island. We're also previewing a new podcast from this here Tablet Studios. It's called What Really Matters with Walter Russell Mead. It's a weekly news show hosted by the aforementioned tablet columnist Walter Russell Mead, along with tablet deputy editor Jeremy Stern. Consider this episode the final kosher pig in a blanket on this holiday week. talking a lot about names here on Unorthodox, so we thought it would be a great time to bring back one of my favorite segments we've ever run. We've all heard the stories from our families about how names got changed at Ellis Island, but did that really happen? In 2019, our editor Noah Levinson investigated the real story behind these immigrant name changes and whether or not they actually happened at Ellis Island. What you hear will shock you. So there's a story that's really common in a lot of American Jewish families about how their last names came to be what they are right now. All right, so say you're a Jew named Robbins. There's a pretty good chance that your family name used to be Rabinowitz. And maybe somebody in your family has already told you this about how your grandpa or your great-grandpa, let's call him Yonkel, came over from Poland or somewhere. And when he arrived at Ellis Island, the immigration officer changed his official name. And henceforth, your Zadie went by the more American-sounding Jacob Robbins. And all of a sudden, at least on paper, Yonkel's a Yankee, a crypto-Jew, passing when he needs to. Of course, this phenomenon is not exclusively Jewish. In fact, its most famous depiction is in the beginning of The Godfather Part Two, where we see a 12-year-old Vito Andolini, fresh off the boat from Sicily, make his way through the Great Hall of Ellis Island. A thousand somber immigrants with numbers pinned to their coats crowd the concourse, where each encounters one in a row of uniformed agents at a tall wooden desk, each busily scribbling in a logbook. Vito is alone. What is your name? Come on, son. What is your name? Vito just looks down at his shoes. A translator comes over and checks the ticket. Vito Andolini from Corleone. And thus originates one of the most famous Italian-American family names in fiction. Corleone. Vito Corleone. Okay. Over there. Check. 70 years after the immigration station there shut down, Ellis Island is still a potent symbol in American history. But what it's a symbol of? Well, that really depends on how you squint. On the one hand, it's where over 12 million immigrants entered the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century. Nearly half of all American citizens have a relative who went through Ellis Island. So it has a lot of positive associations for people. But it has a lot of negative ones, too. The inspection process there was routinely terrifying to a new immigrant. 
While you would wait on the stairs to go in, the doctors would give you a once-over and mark your coat in chalk if they thought you looked sick. If you were, they could send you on the first ship home, separating you from your family. In the 1920s, amidst rising xenophobia, Congress severely restricted immigration. By the end of the 30s, Ellis Island was processing more deportations than new arrivals. During World War II, the government used Ellis Island as an internment camp, where they detained over 7,000 German, Italian, and Japanese-American citizens, some for years. So the memory of these name-change interactions comes in the context of a conflicting history of welcome and unwelcome at Ellis Island. Sure, you can live here, but your name, your identity, there's no room for it in America. My family history contains an Ellis Island name-change story of its own. I asked my grandma Rosie to explain it. My father and my grandfather and grandmother and his siblings came from Russia. They came through Ellis Island. Some of the family had already been here to vouch for them, which was the only way that you could enter the country. What's, what's your dad's name? Max. His name was Max Belfer. But Ellis Island officials changed it to Max Bell who left out the rest of the name. And all his siblings became known as Bells. Belfer was eliminated. It was never heard from again. And that happened, according to them, at Ellis Island. Do you remember any other details about that story? Not really. That was about uh, all that it was. They shortened it to Bell, and they accepted it. The idea that they just accepted it you know, like stood at the desk, some stranger with a notebook tells them they have a new name now. I have to say that detail has fit pretty easily into my admittedly vague conception of what my predecessors went through to get here. I may not have paid very much attention on all those field trips we took in Hebrew school, Holocaust Museum, the Tenement Museum, Ellis Island in the eighth grade. But if anything stuck from all of that, it was that no aspect of my ancestors' hardship, large or small, should ever seem that unlikely to me. But here's the thing about this one. The Ellis Island officer changing the family name. Most historians and genealogists don't believe that it happened. Kirsten Vermeglish, a professor of Jewish American history and the author of A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. It's very hard to prove a negative, you know what I mean? I, I can't absolutely say that it, it didn't happen to people's relatives, but I would say that historians who say this will point to a number of things, which is that most of their oral histories from people who actually went through the island don't say that, right? So these are stories that get sort of told second and third hand, but most of the oral histories from people who actually went through don't tend to say it. There's no doubt that thousands of Jewish families had their names changed after coming to America, but not at Ellis Island, and not at the whim of government officials. The truth is, they did it voluntarily. Um, you don't think it's possible that they changed their name after they got, um, after they'd already been established in no. the... No. No, it was changed at, at Ellis Island. They didn't, there would have been no reason for them to change it on their own. They didn't do it. The government did it. So it's just weird because I'm reading these articles which say, no, that's not really what happened. Like, they, they changed it on their, on their own. And a few stories of this Ellis Island officer doing it 
got blown into a myth that everybody has in their family now, but they don't think it's really true. Well, it may very well be that if they tried to get them to write it, they wouldn't know how. Well, but the... the... They ended, they stopped at the bell. (laughs) Okay, so not to, like, totally belabor the point, but if this book I'm reading that says your family's Ellis Island name change story is very likely one in a big net of myths. Your response to that is? Were they there? (laughs) How did the myth taker downers know it wasn't true? Were they there? Good point. I got it from the horse's mouth. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't make it up. I don't think he made it up. That was his impression. And it was a one-on-one thing. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to look into it. Okay. I'll get I'll get back to you on that. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. Grandma Rosie is right, of course. The myth taker downers were not there. So, I found the next best thing. Someone who, when he talks, he makes you feel like he was there. Okay, when you boarded the ship in Europe, you were asked probably about 20 to 30 questions, depending on the time period. You know, the basic stuff, your name, your age, your occupation. Then they get into the questions that could be tricky. They asked, are you an anarchist? And they asked, are you a polygamist? (laughs) Peter Urban is a park ranger at Ellis Island National Museum. He was a longtime high school history teacher, and you can totally hear it. When he breaks down the process of interviews at Ellis Island, he uses the second person. Like, maybe I'm thinking about immigrating to America. Hopefully you're going to remember your answers. Uh, So don't forget an answer. Uh, Don't give an incorrect answer. And don't look too shifty or suspicious giving the answer. All of them are reasons for you to be detained. So if you answer all those questions properly, uh, they're pretty much going to let you through. I mean, the interview here at Ellis Island by the inspector will probably take about three to five minutes. Bing, bang, boom, they're done. What a lot of people don't realize, according to Peter, is that during these interviews, the immigration officers didn't actually write anything down. They were just checking the immigrants' answers against the ones they had provided to the shipping companies back in Europe. They didn't send the immigrants off with ID cards, passports, anything like that. And contrary to the image of the culturally insensitive immigration officer conjured up by these name-change anecdotes, most Ellis Island immigration officials actually knew three or four languages and they were pretty familiar with foreign-sounding names. The idea that these officers just changed the information given to them, gave people new Anglo-sounding names, it just runs contrary to everything historians know about the process. What you're really looking at here is a myth that has been promulgated just by every ethnic group down through the generations. A lot of immigrants simply changed their names. Like, my original name was Urbanovsky, not Urban. That's the way it was when my great-grandfather came here. So the Ofsky is always a tip-off to an American employer or anybody in American society that you're a foreigner. A lot of immigrants very quickly learned that the Ofsky's not doing me any good here. I don't want to be Urbanovsky anymore. I just want to be Urban. So they, when they were asked their names, they would say Urban. When the census came around, they'd say Urban. Uh, now, over the years people start doing their family research and then they say, well, wait a minute. This says Urbanovsky here. And then somebody's always asking some older member of the family or somebody, what happened to the name? And what's the answer? They changed it at Ellis Island. The easiest thing to say. The inspector changed it at Ellis Island. 
Then they'll point to Godfather Part Two and say, see? So we actually put the word out to our listeners with Ellis Island name change stories in their own backgrounds to go check them out. Robin Koenig Shapiro got back to us. She'd always thought that her grandfather Abe had had his last name changed from Skorka to Scott at Ellis Island. So she dug out an old tape of her aunt interviewing that grandfather about his journey to America. It's how you decided to come and what the trip was like and what was the name of the boat. You gotta remember the name. Well, think about it. What do you remember? The thing Abe Scott remembered the most was arriving in the harbor in the middle of the night and being woken up by the sound of loud explosions outside. And all of a sudden, I heard a commotion. He thought the ship was under attack. Turns out it was just fireworks. It was New Year's Eve. It was New Year's Eve. What year was it? 1914. New Year's Eve, 1914. Because it was a holiday and there was no one at the immigration station to process the passengers, Abe and everybody else stayed on the boat for an extra day. He arrived at Ellis Island on January 2nd. What was that like? What did you? What was what Ellis Island like? They just like they handled you like a bunch of cattle. They treated you like a bunch of cattle, he says. You go through that building, and as you go, they make uh, the officials make marks on your back. You don't even know it. The officials would make marks on your back. You didn't even know it. Were you scared that you might get sent back? I was scared. Anyway, here comes the part we really cared about. Robin's aunt asks. Is that where they changed your name? No. No, Abe replies. Name changing, that's when you take out citizenship papers. Name changing, that's when you take out citizenship papers. Well, when you went there, you told me your name was Skorka, right? Was your name Skorka? Okay. So when you went through there, it's on the record that you were Abraham Scorka. So if I went looking for a record, I would have to look for Scorka. Until she listened to the tapes, Robin's understanding of the story was that the name was changed at Ellis Island. But it sounds like Abe never even made that claim. Maybe somewhere along the line, someone in her family said the name got changed at Ellis Island to mean it got changed after they came to America. And in Robin's memory, just like so many others, that became literal. Professor Vermeglish thinks that might explain how the myth exists in so many families. It's kind of the entire process of immigration. It's this whole confusing kind of visit to the U.S. That, that sort of is what people mean when they say, Ellis Island changed my name. But Professor Vermeglish didn't really spend a lot of time trying to knock down the Ellis Island name change myth in particular. Instead, she dug into the archives of where most of the name changes actually did occur, in the Civil Court of New York. And what she discovered was pretty surprising. What I found in looking at name change petitions, which were petitions filed with a lawyer, a large majority of them are filed by native-born Americans. And so really, my work is really about asking why native-born Americans in pretty large numbers would want to change their names and frequently call their names foreign, you know, not American, um, even though they were born in America. And the answer is, is, to a large extent, they start changing their names, in part because of the rise of uh, a state that begins to look at their names, and that is both a, a, like a government state, but it's also private. It is employers, and it is schools, um, and it is professions. Jews are the most successful white immigrants in becoming middle class, um, and they are the most ambitious in becoming middle class. 
And as they rise into the middle class, they begin to face the growth of institutionalized anti-Semitism that in part is constructed around both their names and their changing of names. So colleges in the 19-teens and employers begin to ask people, what's your name? What's your father's name? Did anybody in your family change their name? Right? So they're both looking at Jewish names and there's contemporary reports that people with Jewish names are, you know, pretty much being not, not given jobs, you know, asked to leave employment agencies or, or not being given, you know, the opportunity even to walk into the employment agencies. Um, Again, it wasn't just Jews who changed their names during this time, but there's good evidence to suggest that they did it at a significantly higher rate than other ethnic groups in New York. In 1932, for example, one measure suggests that almost two-thirds of the city's name change petitions were filed by people with Jewish-sounding last names. You know, I, I was in the New York City Civil Court, and they actually keep these big books. I did a lot of my research with these big, huge books where they kept the name changes um, in the early years, and then they kept these indexes, and it was alphabetical. And you'd go to, like, the C's, right? And they'd have, a, they had, basically, they kept lists of the names that are changed. And you'd go to the C's and you would just see Cohen, 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 Cohen. You'd have an entire page that might be all Cohen's, right? With one or two exceptions, right? Or you'd go to the G's and you just have a page of Greenbergs and Goldbergs. And I do feel sadness. I mean, I do feel like you're sort of seeing these names be erased, be washed away. I asked Professor Vermeglish, given this well-documented history of voluntary name changing, why the myth would persist that the changes happened at Ellis Island. Well, I think that name changing, especially after World War II, becomes something that is uh, a little bit shameful. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's certainly a lot of communal debate and discussion and disagreement about name changing. I think that there's a lot of unease about having changed names, and I think that sometimes the story is being told because people are a little bit uncomfortable or embarrassed. And I want to say, I mean, I write my book. I don't think there's any reason to be embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed. I mean, that's one of the main things that I think in my story is that I think people change their names because of a great deal of pressure to change their names. Um, it doesn't mean that these people don't want to be in involved in the Jewish community. But there's pushback, right? There's, there's a lot of feeling from a lot of people in the community that this is something shameful, that you're betraying the community. Of all the gems the professor unearths in her book, the most amusing and heartbreaking are these moments where Jews, looking to change their names in court, find themselves petitioning in front of Jewish judges. In one case, a Brooklyn salesman named Louis Goldstein tries to get his name changed to Golding claiming that his current name was un-American, not euphonious, and an economic handicap. Unfortunately for him, the judge he was assigned to was also named Louis Goldstein. Judge Goldstein denied the petition. In another case, Everett Levy encounters a judge named Aaron Levy, who does allow him to change his last name to Leroy, but not without a damning reproach. Quote, He is wholly ignorant of the fact that the Bible tells us that the tribe of Levi never worshiped the golden calf. Let the application be granted so that his people might well be rid of him. So yeah, maybe it's no wonder that the Ellis Island name change myth became more widely circulated than the truth. It's easier on our conscience more consistent with our self-perception as proud Jews, to have the burden of such a decision placed onto an imaginary bureaucrat than to admit that we made those decisions ourselves. At first, I find this all depressing. 
I think because of the way it stands in contrast to the example of biblical Jews, to the extent that I know anything about them. Because in the Torah, it just feels like it's story after story of Jews refusing, under threat of annihilation, to give up their Jewish identities. Kind of the opposite of caving to anti-Semitism and changing your name to blend in. Oh, I totally disagree that our ancestors were always gallantly upholding this tradition without any compromises. I think the tradition itself shows us that that's false. Enter Jewish author Dara Horn. Dara plays Hebrew school teacher with me for a minute, which, again, not having paid that much attention in Hebrew school, I appreciate. Today's Parsha, the long list of biblical Jews whose goyish names allowed them to pass. I mean, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace thinking he was a prince. Actually, Moses' own name is an example of kind of Judaizing of a, of a foreign name, you know, because it says, oh, Moshe was, you know, because he was drawn from the water. Like, really? Moses is like Ramesses, right? It's the suffix for a royal name where you append the name of the god. Like, this is an Egyptian name that we've like turned into a Jewish name. Esther changed her name from Hadassah, right? Esther is Ishtar. It's a, it's a Persian god. Same with Mordecai is Marduk. It's a Persian god. So, I mean, these people had like, you know, it would be like being named like, you know, Christine today, right? I mean, these are names from a different tradition. And all of a sudden, I feel much better about the whole thing. Like, changing your name isn't turning your back on your Jewish heritage. In fact, it's actually part of your Jewish heritage. Even the myth part, the part where we tell ourselves a comforting fable to alter the context of the name change. That's in the tradition too. Um, there's a midrash that says that the way that the Jews maintain their heritage in Egypt is that they did not change their names. Well, it's obviously false because even Joseph, who's the first Jew in Egypt, so to speak, in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the one who starts the, you know, brings the Jewish people to Egypt. He changes his name. It's right there in the text in Genesis. He changes his name from Joseph to, uh, I think it's Snafnat Paneha. He changes it to an Egyptian name. It's like, not a secret here. So you made a practical decision to change your name yourself, which if people knew in your family that you had made that choice, they would think that this is basically, my ancestors rejected my Jewish heritage. Think about what you're accomplishing by changing that story and blaming someone else for that name change. You are saying, no, I maintained my Jewish heritage. This place made me change my name. But to me, it was important to keep it, and I want it to be important to you, too. What's your advice for me on how should I go back to my grandma with this information and tell her that I don't think that our name was literally changed at Ellis Island? How should I approach that conversation? I think if you're going back to that person in your family from whom you heard that story, to tell them, you know, this name was not changed at Ellis Island, I think that you thank them for telling this story and for bringing this story to your family. That's going to be a tough sell. I, I gotta, <laughs> thank you, Grandma. I, I don't believe you, but thank you. Well, I mean, you're not saying, I don't believe you, but thank you. You're saying your family name wasn't changed at Ellis Island. It was changed by someone in your family who was under extraordinary pressure that we are so fortunate to not be able to even imagine now by assigning this to someone at Ellis Island, they spared us the pain of saying, look how horrific it was to live in this time. They made us believe that it never was necessary for us to change our names, that it was simply a bureaucratic mistake. This country has always welcomed us. Thank you for making me believe that, because that's a belief that we need. Ellis 
As much as I appreciate Dara's sentiment, that is not what I say to Grandma Razi. Actually, I have some new information for her. She'd advise me to get in touch with her cousin Harriet, who's been compiling the family history for years. And when I did, Harriet informed me that the name was definitely not changed from Belfer to Bell at Ellis Island. Max changed it. The best reason she could glean for this decision came from my grandma Rosie's brother, my uncle Hesh, who reported that their father struggled with his English and elected to go by Bell because it had fewer letters and was easier to spell. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's possible. It's possible that it was easier for him to use Bell instead of Belfer. He didn't know English very well. And it made it shorter and easier. Could be. Do you think he maybe changed it from Belfer to Bell because Bell is less identifiably Jewish? No. I do not. I mean, why do you think, I don't know, why do you think he would have said that he he had his name, that an immigration officer changed his name if he made the decision himself? I don't know. It was never a big discussion. It was never a big, of great importance. Because nobody, because people didn't ask him about it or he didn't no, like to talk about it? Either. That I recall, it never came up very often. I keep wondering if Dara's explanation applies to our family. Like, maybe it doesn't at all. Maybe Max really did change his name just because it was easier to spell, and my grandmother got a hold of the Ellis Island myth purely by accident, portending nothing but the ubiquity of the Godfather Part Two on our national collective memory. Or maybe Max was shrewd enough to know that Bell was less likely than Belfer to out him as a Jew. And the Ellis Island story served exactly the purpose Dara suggested, to shield his kids from the pain of that decision. Either way, he didn't raise his children to believe that anti-Semitism was a part of their lives in America at all. What did, what did Max talk about from that time, from when he, uh, when he was younger? How difficult life was in Russia. How glad he was to be able to leave and stay alive because the Russian army were after him. They were after all the Jews. But I don't think that he was too concerned about uh, anti-Semitism here. Do you think it was important to him that you guys fit in more or more important to him that you remain really distinctively Jewish and different? Oh, it was, it was never an issue. You could have it both ways. We fit in wherever we were, and a lot of where we were was populated by Jews, not all. Not everybody was Jewish. We got along with our non-Jewish neighbors, and, and it never seemed to make a difference. We did what we did, they did what they did, and when our paths crossed, they crossed as friends. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for your time, Grandma. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You are. You're one of my favorite people to interview. Actually, <laughs> you're very relaxed. Because you think I'm making it all up. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I don't think you're making it up. I I totally trying I believe to you're... think of the name of the person from Whippany Paper Board. I never said I'd ever forget that name. <laughs> 
just rock you to your core? Did this just make you question everything you knew to be true about your family? Please share it with us. Write us, call us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com, 914-570-4869. We want to keep this conversation going. And if you're going to confront any relatives, please, please, please get out your iPhone, record it as a voice note, and send it to us. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. a new show that we are so excited to tell you about. Tablet Studios is launching a brand new podcast. It's called What Really Matters with Walter Russell Mead. It's a weekly show that's all about the news. It's hosted by the illustrious Walter Russell Mead, along with my tablet colleague, Jeremy Stern. We wanted to give Unorthodox listeners a preview before the show launches so you are in the know and ready to listen. So I called up my colleague, Jeremy Stern. Jeremy, welcome to Unorthodox. It's good to finally see you again, Steph. I think it's maybe been one whole hour since the last time we spoke. I got worried. Well, I do have to say it's a little awkward for me to have you on Unorthodox because you are Tablet's deputy editor. I used to be Tablet's deputy editor. And it's sort of like a running thing on this show that I was still calling myself deputy editor after you had come on. People were like, what's your title? Not that anyone actually cares what any of our titles are, um, but I think it's important that everyone meet you and know that you exist. I am the pretender to the throne. <laughs> or maybe I, I'm the regent while you're out here in podcast land. I'm the, uh, I'm the regent running the magazine at but, that level. But honestly, yeah, now, now you're starting to podcast. So like maybe I should be, be nervous. But so tell us a little bit about this new show that you are co-hosting. So listeners might know Walter Russell Mead. He is the Global View columnist of the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of many great books about the history of U.S. foreign policy. He's also a pundit and popular author who's frequently on TV and in print. But for anyone who doesn't know him, Walter is like a walking human encyclopedia about politics, culture, history, literature, music. I mean, he can dish on literally everything and is just an unbelievably engaging, entertaining conversationalist to boot. So I've always felt like getting him to talk on a weekly or weekly-ish basis about the news, about history, about Americana, about foreign policy would just be a great gift to all the history buffs and news junkies out there. And more specifically, one of the things we, we both felt was that the need many people seem to have to 
follow the news and engage with the news is actually a, a good and important impulse. But if you think about the people in your life who are really into consuming news and Twitter on a daily or hourly basis, and then the people who largely just exempt themselves from it. I mean, if I ask, like, who among those people seems happy to you and who seems utterly miserable? Like, I don't even have to ask, right? It's like a joke. So we figured there are actually better or worse ways to follow the news, smarter or less smart ways to keep yourself informed about America and the world and where we're all going. So this new podcast, What Really Matters, is our attempt to do that. It's funny because a lot of the times when there is big news, I think I don't actually want to read a bunch of news articles. I want someone really smart to read news articles. And usually I kind of make you do this, Jeremy, but I'm like, and to then to sort of distill it and explain it to me and then like help me figure out where I stand. So it sounds like I'm not alone in this, right? Is the hope? That's the hope. That's the idea, right? So we're going to kind of use Walter's unique erudition and good sense as our kind of secret sauce here and to help listeners kind of better understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and really just enjoy following the, the human story and the story of America more than I guess they they do right now. And so what are listeners going to hear on What Really Matters? So we're going to have a few regular segments. One of the three or four major segments that will appear in every episode is called News or Faux News. Faux News being distinct from fake news, which I guess is just information that's literally made up. So faux news isn't necessarily made up. It's just empty, meaningless headlines that you shouldn't waste your time following. So the idea is to help our listeners distinguish more clearly between news that's really important and meaningful and news that they can safely or comfortably ignore, regardless of what the algorithms want them to think. Uh, another segment we're going to feature regularly is called the learning curve. So everyone's heard the saying about history repeating itself. So in this segment, we're going to take a look at a big blunder or mistake that was made in history with relevant lessons for our own time. Another is going to be the big conversation. That's usually going to be based on one of Walter's recent columns. Maybe every so often we'll have a special guest to help us talk through it. But that's going to be on anything. It could be from immigration policy to religion, finance, technology, housing, education. I mean, the great thing about Walter is he can dish on anything. And then each uh, week we're going to wrap up with a tip of the week from Walter, a book or travel or music recommendation. That's amazing. This, this all started because uh, Walter used to have a blog at the American Interest magazine called Via Media, very popular and influential back in the heyday of blogging. And that's how Walter and I actually met in the first place. Around the end of last year at a dinner, we were batting around the idea of reviving a kind of Via Media 2.0 at Tablet, which has got off to a smashing success. I think the first column was in April, and it's already taken Twitter by storm. And so this podcast, is a it's a kind of weekly, more news-oriented companion podcast to the column. We have a bit of the show uh, that we're going to share here for our listeners. What are we about to hear? So this is going to be our first edition of news or faux news. It's got everything. It's got Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's got Donald Trump. It's got the remote work revolution and the evacuation of commercial real estate in major cities. And so Walter is going to parse these headlines for us and tell us what's news and what's faux news. All right. So our listeners are about to hear one of the segments on What Really Matters, a podcast hosted by Walter Russell Mead and our own Jeremy Stern. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or check it out on tablet at tabletmag.com slash what really matters.
Our first segment is called News or Faux News. The idea is to help listeners distinguish between signal and noise, which headlines are real and which are BS. So I'm going to toss out three stories in the news cycle, and Walter, you separate the wheat from the chaff. You tell us whether it's news or faux news. Our first story, Donald Trump faces federal criminal charges related to his post-presidency handling of classified documents. Nevertheless, Trump continues to beat the GOP primary field in nationwide and statewide polls where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is currently sinking like a stone. News or faux news? If there's anybody out there in podcast land who was surprised by any of these developments, please write in and give us your name, email, and your bank transfer details because we have a bridge that we would like to sell you. Okay, I'll take that as faux news. Story number two. At two recent meetings of OPEC+, Saudi Arabia and Russia failed to come to an agreement about oil production. The Saudis are reducing output to prop up failing prices, while Russia will accept lower prices in order to continue selling more oil. New York Times reports this apparent rift could actually benefit the Biden administration. News or faux news? Well, there's a lot of faux news and a lot of real news in there, but uh, what what readers should be paying attention here to is a couple of things. One is countries act in accordance with their interests. The Saudis' interest is not in squeezing out as much money as they can week to week from the oil market because they've got a lot of oil and hope to be selling it for a long time. Russia, on the other hand, the house is on fire. They got a war to win. They want every penny they can get now. And so amazingly, their interests are different. And astonishingly, this leads to different policies at OPEC plus. I mean, truly, you know, the entire world of political science will be knocked on its heels uh, if this word ever leaks out. Um, Will it help the Biden administration? Um, I don't know. Um, You know, it's interesting that, you know, the Biden administration kind of started by by telling the world that uh, MBS was a pariah, was a horrible human being, And let me get it straight, as an American newspaper columnist, I disapprove of foreign countries killing American newspaper columnists um, and think it's a terrible precedent, a bad idea. Uh, But at the same time, I think the Biden administration got itself up on a moral high horse and was making all kinds of sort of making all kinds of cheap moral comments about how virtuous they were and how nasty the, the Saudis were, only to wake up in the middle of, the, of their term and realize, oh, wait a minute, Saudi Arabia is an important country which has, you know, has a number of elements of the amount of money that it has, its diplomatic ability, and of course, its influence on world oil price, and we need it. So Secretary Blinken, we had the infamous fist bump of President Biden with MBS. And now that clearly wasn't enough. And uh, Secretary of State went to Saudi Arabia to try again to smooth waters. So the Biden administration is trying to clean up a mess that it made. And I think we, we need to give them points 
not for making the mess in the beginning, but realizing that they screwed up. They screwed up an important relationship for the United States. That screw up had real world consequences and it's time to fix it. Third and final story. During the first three months of 2023, U.S. office vacancies topped 20% for the first time in decades, and office attendance in the 10 largest business districts in the United States is still below 50% of its pre-COVID level. News or faux news? That's one of the most important stories, I think, of the week, the year, possibly the decade. Um, because the truth is that that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, revealed a truth that we didn't know, but is actually important, which is we don't need the nine to five commute. We don't need to have tens of millions of Americans in, you know, swearing and cursing in traffic jams that, that spew carbon into the atmosphere, suck hours and hours and hours out of people's lives, impose huge infrastructure costs on it. It turns out none of that do we need anymore because uh, half the work in the United States can actually be done by people sitting peacefully at home. And that was, that was an example of how technology has changed the world in a way that nobody admitted or un and nobody predicted, nobody understood, nobody noticed. For years, we've been hearing about the stagnation, there's no productivity increase, we're making all these investments in technology, what's happening? What's happening is we've totally changed the way work works, right? Now, what is really interesting is that Americans all over the country don't see the point of long commutes, long expensive commutes. They don't see the point of being away from their families for unnecessary hours. They don't actually really believe that all of those conversations by the water cooler are magical conversations that spark new ideas. And while they don't really love Zoom meetings, they feel that actually you can pretty much get done what you need to do uh, in Zoom, and it's better than driving three hours across the city. And the implications of this are potentially immense. First of all, we're seeing corporate management really wanting to get those chicks back under its wings. And every you know senior management, a lot of corporations are starting to threaten and penalize people to try to whip them back into the office. My own sense is that's probably not the best way to increase worker productivity or improve morale. What is it they say? The beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, and so we're seeing some fight back there. But this is not, this is bigger than a story about workers and commutes. It's a story about cities. If those vacancy rates stay where they are, uh, we're going to see a financial crisis in city. We're seeing it in San Francisco to some degree already. New York, Los Angeles, a lot of cities, uh, their tax bases are not gonna, not gonna make sense anymore because commercial real estate that's half empty is not worth as much as corporate real estate that is full and that people are leasing for new offices. So we're gonna see a fiscal crisis. My guess is we're gonna start seeing a lot of corporate and government power trying to force a return to work, to force people to get back into 
you know, back into the mold, back in, back into, you know, start getting back into the matrix so that um, uh, we can, you know, so that the tax numbers add up for the cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a real struggle. But the industrial age city, the sort of center city with rings of suburbs radiating out from it, no longer makes economic sense. And that reality is going to be an important background piece of our lives for years to come as we sort out the debris of this explosion. Subscribe to What Really Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and check out tabamag.com slash whatreallymatters. While we're talking about other tablet podcasts, I want to remind you about our show, Gate Crashers. That was the eight-part series about the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League, hosted by Mark Oppenheimer. The show covers 100 years of history, but is actually incredibly relevant right now. And that's because last week, on June 29th, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision rejecting affirmative action in U.S. colleges. The decision is based on cases brought against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, What's interesting is that the practices that were just struck down have a lot in common with what Columbia and Yale and Harvard and the rest of the Ivy Leagues did when they tried to limit the number of Jewish applicants in the early 20th century. If you haven't yet listened to Gate Crashers, now is the time to start. Start with episode one about Columbia and learn about the inception of college applications, interviews, testing, and more, and the ways in which these practices were adopted to keep out the first minority group that tried to gain entry into the Ivy Leagues. Those stories still reverberate today in what we are seeing in the news. You can binge the entire series wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Gatecrashers or go to tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. Just one Mazel Tov this week, and it is for the entire cast and crew of Leopold Shot. Ding, 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 ding. They just ended their Broadway run. We are so proud of all of them, especially Joshua Molina. We've been so happy to vicariously live through the experience of being in the show. We're so in awe of what they did on stage every single night, or I guess every single nacht, and we we offer them the biggest, heartiest mazel tov. And that's all for the show this week. We will be back to regular programming next week. Until then, shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>